How do you do today? It is a joy to be here with you this morning. I really mean that. I hope you feel the same way about me. I hope you're glad and joyful to see one another. (laughs) We are kicking off a new sermon series. We're going to be turning our attention to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And there's some homework with this one. I want to encourage each of you in the week ahead, maybe more than once in the weeks ahead, to read the book of Ruth in its entirety. It's only four chapters, 2,000 words, not long, and when it's done, you'll be sad it's over. So please pick up a Bible and read the book of Ruth. If you need a Bible, you can pick one up back there on your way out. That's our gift to you. And now before we dive into Ruth, let me pray. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the grace that you pour out onto us each and every day, and right now today, unmerited. We thank you for the grace we are about to receive as we open and listen to your word. So give us open minds and open hearts that we might be strengthened in faith and love. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for this new series is called Boundless Love. Boundless love. And we picked that title because it corresponds to a word that appears in almost every chapter of the book of Ruth. The word, it's a Hebrew word, is hesed. It's not easy to say. You've got to say it like you're hacking up something, in fact. Hesed. Hesed. Otherwise, they'll know you're not a native Hebrew speaker. So let's say that together. I want you to imagine that you're hacking something up. You ready? Hesed. I'm going to say that word a lot in this sermon. You're going to hear it a lot in the coming weeks. I want you to know what it means, hesed. Now, that word hesed is notoriously difficult to translate. Sometimes it gets translated as faithfulness, sometimes as loving kindness, sometimes, and this is what I prefer, it's loyal love. One commentator defines the word hesed like this, love without an exit strategy, love without an exit strategy. Hesed refers to stubbornly committed love. There's no prenup. It's boundless. And Hesed is one of the main themes of the book of Ruth. It shines forth in Ruth herself, all the things that she does, but it's also displayed in other characters in this story, as we will see in the coming weeks. And all of that points to the central purpose of the book of Ruth. And here it is in a nutshell. God has given us this story to help us become people who are marked by Hesed, people who are known for Hesed, a community a people known for loyal love. That's what the church is to be. That's what the people of God is meant to be. But what exactly is the nature of hesed? If you put hesed in the MRI, what are you going to see when the scan comes back? That's the question we're going to be tackling in the coming weeks as we look at different key events, different key moments in the book of Ruth. And each of these events, each of these moments in their own way show us what hesed is made of. And one thing it's made of, and this is what we're going to focus on today, is promises, commitments, radical commitments made at personal cost. Along these lines, I want to touch on three things this morning about promise and commitment as part of the DNA of Hesed. First, we're going to look at the commitment that Ruth makes. And then we're going to reflect on the commitments that we are called to make as the people of God. And third, I want us to think about how on earth we become capable of making and keeping these kind of commitments. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start with the commitment that Ruth makes. By the way, quick heads up, the first chapter of Ruth, as you've already heard, is filled with loss and despondency. It can be a tearjerker. So if you need a tissue, here's one. You just come on up and grab it. 
if you need a tissue because it is a deeply moving, sad story full of despondency. It starts off with a famine in the land of Israel. That means there's a shortage of food. And so this couple, we, get, we meet them in chapter 1, Elimelech and Naomi. They move over to the neighboring country of Moab where apparently there was still food on the grocery store shelves. They take their two sons with them, and those sons end up being raised up in Moab. And as they grow up and come to age, they marry two Moabite women. One is called Orpah, one is called Ruth. Life's all right, nobody's starving, everything's, everybody's getting on until they aren't, until they aren't. Catastrophe strikes, Elimelech dies, and then not too long after, both of his sons die. Everybody's dead. And so Naomi finds herself a widow, which was a horrible situation to be in in the ancient Near Eastern world in which they all lived. Naomi's in a rough spot. You might say she is in the roughest spot. This is a woman who is indescribably vulnerable, and all the more so because by this point in the story, she's older. In other words, she does not have parents that she can go back to. They are probably deceased. She does not have the prospects of building a new family. And, of course, she has no adult children with families who could take care of her as a result of the fact that she's now a widow. It is a devastating scenario. Life has taken everything away from Naomi. There's no family name, there's no hope of posterity, there's a sure and certain future of poverty that awaits her. In this context, this is a woman who has become nothing. That's why Naomi is sometimes referred to as the female Job. So she decides to move back to Israel, where she's going to face the prospect of a dead-end life of social and economic marginalization, but at least back in Israel she won't be a foreigner. That's one thing that's better by being back in Israel. So she's packing to get ready to go back home, and her two daughters-in-law, they're still alive, of course, uh, Orpah and Naomi, they come and watch her pack, and she says to them, I don't want you to go with me, verse 11. Turn back. You're going to have better prospects if you stay in Moab, your homeland. Now, Orpah and Ruth are also widows, but they're young, so they could remarry. They probably had parents who were still living who could support them in the interim. And plus, Naomi knows that if they do go to Israel with her, the chances of having a good future for them will in all likelihood be even lower. Things could get even worse than they already are. Let me explain. At this moment in history, relations between Israel and Moab were strained, and that's putting it diplomatically. There was enormous racial enmity between these two people groups, which meant that Orpah and Ruth, if they went with Naomi back to Israel, they would be foreigners in a hostile territory. They'd be surrounded by people who looked down on their race. They would in all likelihood be subject to racial violence. You get a clue that this could happen in chapter 2. We'll look at that next week. So after taking stock of this rather bleak forecast, this rather dour prognosis, Uh, a.k.a. life is going to be miserable in Israel. Orpah, very understandably, very reasonably, kisses her mother-in-law farewell. That's verse 14. Nice knowing you, Naomi. Have a great life without me. But not Ruth. Ruth does something that is nothing short of dumbfounding. Instead of kissing Naomi farewell, she clings to her. She clings to her. I want you to look at verse 16 through 18. That's printed in your bulletin. This is the first time that Ruth speaks in her own voice by herself in this story. First time we hear a voice, and what a voice it is. And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people, they will be my people. 
and your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Beautiful words. That's Ruth's promise. That's her commitment. Beautiful, but also utterly dumbfounding. What just happened? Let me tell you what just happened. With this promise, Ruth is committing to give up her friends and family. She is committing to be a widow in a foreign land known for hating her race. She is forsaking any meaningful chance at getting married again. And she is in all likelihood setting herself up for a life of poverty. That's what just happened. That's what just happened. Or think of it like this. Every act of immigration is drastic. When you immigrate, you leave the familiar and thrust yourself into the unknown. That's what all of our forebears did when they came to this country. They left the old world, whatever old world it was. Leave the familiar, thrust yourself into the unknown. But here's the thing. When immigrants do that, when a person takes that kind of incredible risk, when they check in at Ellis Island, they always do it in the hope of a better life. But not with Ruth. Here is someone who's willing to leave everything behind, everything familiar, knowing that she's probably going to have a worse life. A worse life. Nevertheless, there it is. Naomi, I am with you. Whatever happens to me happens to you. Our bones are going to be buried together, so help me God. It boils down to this. Ruth is courageously making a commitment to give up her future, her best life, at great personal cost to ensure the future welfare and good of another person, Naomi. Folks, that is has said at its finest. That is has said at its finest. Ruth is showing us an essential aspect of has said, committing yourself to another's future, to another's good, regardless of the cost to yourself. And what happens as a result of this? Blessing. As things unfold in the coming chapters, we're going to see this. Stuff happens that neither Ruth nor Naomi would ever have imagined. Now, that's not to say everything that happens is easy and pleasant and nice. No, no, no. There is immense difficulty. There is immense hardship. But there is immeasurable blessing as well, which is precisely why God calls you and me and all the people of God to make commitments to one another like the one that Ruth makes to Naomi. So I want to transition now to think about that, the commitments that we are called to make. Certainly, if we're going to be people, if we're going to be a community that exhibits and mirrors God's has said out into this world. There's a psychologist whose work I like. His name is Lewis Smeads. Anyone ever heard of Lewis Smeads? Al has. He's done some really perceptive work on commitments and hope. And one of the things that Smead says, it's pretty self-evident, but it's still very easily forgotten. One of the things he says is that we live in an unpredictable world. Is that a surprise to anyone? But we act like it's not true, don't we? We live in an unpredictable world. We live before a future that is, by and large, completely unpredictable. We have no idea how our lives might change, our circumstances might change, our world can change all in an instant. We've been reminded of that in the last three weeks by what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Which means that the only certainty you can count on this world is uncertainty. And that is why we are, as a species, so scared, so anxious, and so, so fearful. And consequently, it's why we're always desperately trying to insulate ourselves from all the unpredictable things that happen in the world. We squirrel up stuff for ourselves, things far beyond what we need. We buy insurance out the wazoo. We build bunkers. 
We vote against anyone who would threaten to touch Social Security. You know how this is. By the way, um, <clears throat> wink, wink, that's going to be changing as soon as you all baby boomers lose your voting power. We are going to have to re reform Social Security. Just dropping that in real quick. The truth, however, is this. I cannot finally and absolutely protect myself from the unpredictability of the future that lies before me. You can't do that either. But that's not the last word. Because when we make a promise, when you make a commitment, something extraordinary happens. Everything else might change. The world might change. But now there's something you can count on. I will be here. I will be here. Commitments create islands of certainty in a sea of chaos. That's what a promise does. I am one who will be here no matter what. Hallelujah. There's some predictability in a world that is otherwise replete with volatility. Now, one of the clearest examples of the power of commitment is seen, you all know this, in the making of marriage vows or wedding vows, your nuptials. I always meet with couples I'm going to marry. I hadn't done any of that yet here. Um, did a lot of it back in Vancouver. Whenever I meet with the couples I'm going to marry, we always have some really candid discussions. We talk about money. We talk about family systems, we talk about sex, and we talk about what is going to hold you together. I always ask them that question. And what do I hear? We're just so compatible. I'm glad. That's wonderful you're so compatible. We're just so physically and sexually attracted to each other. Wonderful. I am so glad that you are physically and sexually attracted to each other. We have so many common hobbies. All the better. Going to a Star Trek convention together can really nurture mutual connection. I am so glad. But here's the thing. None of that is enough. None of that is enough. Because you're going to change. And she's going to change. And things are going to happen to you, really hard things. And you have no clue how that will impact you. There will be gladness, there will be laughter, but there will be loss and there will be sorrow. And when you come face to face with those realities, and you will... This is the older part of the congregation, so you know what I'm talking about. You have. When you come face-to-face -face with those realities, when your compatibility runs thin, when your sexual attraction dips, when one of you has had enough of Star Trek, whatever it is, what's going to hold you together? The answer is the commitments that you make to each other. But that does not just pertain to marriage, so please listen up. This commitment-making that is in the DNA of Hesed it's got to be part of any relationship that's worth its salt, like the one between Ruth and Naomi, for example. Any real relationship, any true friendship, any genuine community like the one that we are and we are trying to nurture and build here at Christ the King rests on a foundation of promise. Everything of value in this world hangs on a promise, on the commitments that we make. The health and vitality of this church our marriages and our families, our friendships, the social fabric that holds this nation together, which is so frayed right now. All of that depends on our capacity to make and keep commitments. Do you see? Which is why it is so sad, it is so deeply disconcerting that we humans struggle mightily to make and keep promises and commitments. Certainly that is the case at our particular time and place, at this particular cultural moment. For late modern, highly individualistic people, who's that? Raise your hand. That's everybody in this room. Late modern, highly individualistic people like ourselves, promises and commitments can be a real pain. How come? Because they constrain. They narrow our options. 
And for individualistic people like me, like us, who are also chronically infected with FOMO, if you're over 50 years old, that means fear of missing out. Uh, It is a terrible virus that is all over the place in our world right now. That kind of constraint is simply intolerable. And so what Ruth does, the profound sacrificial commitment that she makes to Naomi, that is really, really hard for us. After all, by saying yes to Naomi, Ruth is saying no to other options. She's limiting herself. And we hate being limited. We hate being pinned down. In our world, limitations are considered suffocating. Evidence of this abounds. Take the trend of cohabitation before marriage. Why do you think that happens? Lots of reasons, but one of the big reasons is fear of commitment, not wanting to shut down our options. After all, next year you might decide you want to ride a Chevy instead of a Ford. That's how it goes. Nobody wants to shut down their options. Commitments limit our freedom to make other decisions. Yes, they do, and we dread that, but we shouldn't because in truth, commitments can expand rather than just retract our freedom. Let me explain this to you. I want you to take an Olympic runner, for example. For years, he restricts his daily liberty, his daily freedom to do whatever he wants through his commitment to intense training, tight discipline about what he, around what he eats and what he drinks. And what does he get as a result? He gets the freedom, the strength, the skill to excel at doing hurdles, even the possibility of running a mile as fast as I can. That's what he gets for all that discipline, for those limitations. The same thing holds when it comes to making relational commitments to one another. We commit to our spouses and our friends. We commit to this community, to our small groups. And in doing so, we gain the freedom of experiencing trusting, deep, joy-giving connection. And that is what we were created for. And the fact that so many of us don't have that is simply tragic. But let me put it this way. If you don't live by making commitments and promises to other people, you're a slave. You're you're the one who's actually a slave. You're going to be shackled to your emotions, your whims, your impulses, your FOMO, and all of that can change on a dime depending on what you had for lunch or whether the sun is shining or whether you got to exercise today or whether you got an email or a text that said something pleasant or unpleasant. It can all change. A lot of people live like that. You want to live like that? A lot of people live like that. They don't live by commitments. They live by emotions and whims. They are trapped in the contradictions and equivocalities of the human heart. That is what they are. They are enslaved. Here's what that can sound like. This is a, what I'm going to tell you now is a sobering but increasingly common scenario in this world, and it breaks my heart. A man comes in to the pastor And he says that he wants to divorce his wife after several decades of marriage. And he says, this is really painful, but i got to be honest. I just don't feel anything for her anymore. And it's been that way for many years. I'm so tired of living a divided life. That's how he explains it. And then he goes on to say, so now I need to be true to myself. I need to be authentic, true to myself at long last i got to stop living a divided life, Pastor. Do you know what I think when I hear that? I'm not going to tell you everything I think when I hear that. Do you know what I want to say when I hear that? 
What spouse has not felt that? Is there any spouse who has not felt that? What spouse has not had days and months and even longer stretches of time in which your own emotional reality did not match the vow and the commitment that you made when you got married? Is there anyone in here, any spouse, who has not experienced a division between the will which makes commitments and your emotions? We all experience that. Notwithstanding the message of our culture right now, and it comes loud and clear every day, every hour, is that our choices and our commitments, if we even make them, should be fully aligned with our emotions, to which we need to say bollocks, which is a slightly more polite British way of saying something else. Now, to be sure, I'm not saying feelings and emotions are bad. We all have lots of them. I have lots of them. They are integral to who we are. But feelings are highly unpredictable, which means that this modern quest Maybe it's your quest to align your will with your emotions will not ultimately make you whole. It will only splinter you. Splinter you as you chase after the vicissitudes of the human heart. Ups and down, all the volatilities. And so a really good question to ask yourself at this moment is, who am I? Are you just the sum total of your genes? That's what a lot of people tell us we are these days. Are you simply how you feel today? That's how a lot of us act these days. No, You are the commitments that you make to other people, or at least we should be. Do you think Ruth was filled with happy, clappy feelings when she made that promise to Naomi? I doubt it. I doubt it. According to God, we are most fully ourselves, not just when we feel good and have everything that we want, but rather when we learn how to make and keep the commitments that are integral to genuine love, to said love. And so it is not uninterrupted freedom to choose anything I want all the time, but rather limitation for the sake of love that leads me to true life. But as I've said, that can be really hard. It can be really hard for us. And not just because we don't like to be limited, not just because we don't like our options to be narrow, but it can also be hard, and this is perhaps a more significant reason why it can be hard. It can be hard because keeping commitments of love can be costly and painful for me. Really costly, really painful. It is hard... When you commit to a child and give them everything, and there's little gratitude in return. As I said to Audrey the other week, sharper than a serpent's tooth, a thankless child. Shakespeare, King Lear, trying to make sure she's not raised in a barn. It is hard when you commit to a parent or a spouse, caring for them day in and day out. You give, 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 and all that they give in return is criticism. That is hard. Committed love can be costly. At times, it can be unbearable. It can be lonely. There is not always an instant reward, and it is often the case that nobody's really going to see the pain that you endure. I know that. Some of you know that. Ruth knew that. Look back at the text. This is an interesting little silence, little detail in the text. She makes this astounding promise to Naomi, this mind-blowing promise. I am with you to the end. My bones will be buried with your bones in a land that is not my own. And how does Naomi respond? Did you notice? Does she jump with joy and embrace Ruth and pour forth gratitude? No. Verse 18, she doesn't say anything. Just like some of the parents that you're caring for don't say anything. Ouch, that must have hurt. And yet Ruth persevered. How did she persevere? Where on earth do we get the power to persevere in these sorts of commitments, to make and keep them? The answer's in the text. It's in verse 16, another crucial detail, probably the most important line in this chapter. 
Ruth has made all these promises, and right there in the middle, the bullseye of the promises, and your God shall be my God. That's a hugely significant statement, because while Ruth is making a decision for Naomi, she's making a bigger decision for God in this moment. What we're reading about is her conversion. No doubt it started when she married into the family, but it has now come to fruition. The penny has dropped. She's gone all in for God. And this is a woman who now knows that her sacrificial promise to care for Naomi, and it will involve sacrifice, is going to be matched and underwritten by God's promise to care for her. And the takeaway for us is this. It is Ruth's faith in God, not her love and affection for Naomi, that gives her the power to endure in her sacrificial commitment of love for Naomi. It's her faith in God that, endure, that makes that possible, not her love for Naomi. Promises are only as strong as the person who makes them, and without God, we are just not strong enough. Look around at the world. People break commitments and promises like it is their job. If we all got a dollar every time we broke a commitment or promise, there would probably be several millionaires in the room right now. I might be one of them. Even the most sacred of commitments we can break without breaking a sweat. Happens all the time, which is why we need God the way that Ruth has him. Otherwise, we're lost. That's how the cards fall. When you make a promise to another and you set out to keep it, you cannot rely on that person, to, to their, their love for you, to keep it going. If you're caring for an aging parent or a sick child and the energy for this demanding task is sustained by their love and gratitude for all you're doing for them, and then one day that ceases... One day they get grumpy, they get foul. What happens then? There's no reciprocity. What happens then? I'll tell you what happens. You're done. You will be done. You will not sustain. The only way to endure the cost of hesed love and those commitments is to be rooted in God's faithful love and care for you. You've got to know what St. Paul knows as he puts it in Romans 8, the very center of the Bible, one of the best verses ever written. He says, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have to know that. If you've got Christ when everything else is said and done, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Friends, are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? Are you hearing me? The only promise that will keep us faithful in our costly commitments of love to one another are God's promises to us. And those are promises which endured immense suffering and immense sacrifice, more than we will ever endure for your sake, for my sake, in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you know that love, and when you experience his unchanging faithfulness for you, despite the fact that it is not often requited, it is then and only then that you will find the fuel to keep your promises to other people. I'm talking about the power to do remarkable things. You can face anything. And I know it's true because I know people right now who are doing it in the most difficult of circumstances. We're talking about a tank that never drains it's always brimming up like a well with fresh living water. So we need to ask for that water. We need to ask again. Some of you need a drink. I can see it in your faces right now. I need a drink from that every week myself. So let's drink up. We find strength for boundless love, not in the praise or affirmation or affection of those that we are committed to, but rather in the one who is tirelessly and unendingly committed to us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.